Open your Bibles, please, to Judges chapter 3. Judges 3, we're going to be taking a look there as we continue our uh, sermon series um, from the book of Judges. Uh, We'll begin in a moment here in verse 12. Judges 3, verse uh, 12. As you're turning there, I want you to imagine a scene. Imagine two army privates. You see these guys, they're sitting there, they're swapping stories, they're yucking it up, they're laughing out loud, they kind of seem to be enjoying themselves, slapping each other on the arm as they recount stories of the battle. And as you see the two of them, you recognize that they are covered in dirt and grime and they're sweaty and they're a mess and you realize they have just come from the battlefield. They've just come from the battlefield. It's a battle that they won. Their side was victorious, and they're celebrating the stories of that victory. You can imagine conversation going something like this. I thought we was dead. That Jeep was coming right at us, and then bam! You see that? That was awesome. Direct hit saved our skin. Yeah, did you see Sarge? Those two guys, he jumped out of nowhere. I think those two guys wet themselves. They were so afraid. Yeah, Sarge took them on. Two on one, he beat them. Head to head, hand to hand, he took them. Wow. And back and forth the stories go as they are amazed at the victory. And then one of them says something about, hey, by the way, I'm sorry about the whole walking into the minefield thing. I should have read the sign. I'm sorry I took us in there and you lost your leg. And you look back at the scene and you realize that much of what you thought was dirt on their uniforms is dried blood. And the one guy is missing his leg. And they're sitting there waiting medical attention. And yet they're rejoicing in the victory. You see, that celebration, that recounting of the win, that remembering what happened and celebrating it, is some of the best medicine there is. Sitting there, thinking about the missing leg, thinking about the wounds, thinking about their exhaustion, thinking about the sweat, thinking about their hunger, gets them nowhere. But remembering that they won, remembering that their sergeant saved them, that their unit blew up that jeep at the last possible moment and dragged them to safety. Now that's worth thinking about. And that is comfort, even though they're hurting. That is an illustration, that is an example of what we have in Judges 3, in the story of Ehud. We have a bizarre story, a story with some bizarre details. But it is a story recounting the salvation of God. It's a story that rejoices in what the Lord has done. It's a story being told by a wounded, hurting people. But as they tell it, they're reminded not to focus on their wounds, not to focus on their hurts, but to focus on their God. And as we read the story, I encourage you to listen for the way that it is told, for the telling of the story. And I encourage you to feel the tragedy of the story. And most of all, to look for the theme of the story. Listen for the telling of the story. 
feel the tragedy in the story and look for the theme of the story. Hear now the word of Almighty God from Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, When they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah, where he arrived. Sorry, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Let's pray. Lord, let us see the, the, the salvation that you provide in this story. Let us see the joy that is expressed in recalling and remembering that salvation. And when we are hurting, when we are down, when we are afflicted by sin, when we are uh, struggling with the difficulties of this life, let us, like your people of old, rejoice in retelling the account of your salvation. 
let us enjoy and be, be encouraged by what you have done for us. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. This is a bizarre story. It is a difficult story to deal with rightly, and I will probably miss the mark. For there are basically two ways that most pastors, most teachers, most people handle this story. One is to look at the details, some of the kind of disgusting details, the disgusting aspects of the manner in which Eglon was killed and what happened when he died with the the, the dung spilling out. And to take that and make that as an excuse to, to Look at the earthiness of the Bible and to make it really gross so it gets attention. We can talk on and about all these sick details. And there's this temptation to add in gratuitous disgustingness just to get attention. On the flip side, there is a temptation to ignore a story like this altogether. To believe it to be undignified, unfitting of a worship service not belonging rightly to God and to his people. We must not be more dignified than the Holy Spirit. For if he chose to include this, then we need to include it. But at the same time, there is no need to be gratuitously gross. For even the account in the Hebrew uses a euphemism at points in here to deal delicately with some of the things happening And so we need to walk that line and try to strike that balance, seeing what is there to be seen without just making it all about the disgusting details. For if we ignore the story, we will miss the point of the story. And if we focus on the gratuitous details, we will miss the point of the story. We need to hear God's message to us this morning. So I said one of the things we wanted to do was to look at the telling of the story, how it's actually told. Now, first of all, just reading this one account, it may not jump out at you, but if you'll recall last week, we looked at Othniel, the first of the judges, and Othniel, uh, uh, the account of Othniel covered about 58 years, and it was only five verses. And there was almost no detail. None at all. So this story, the one thing we notice right off the bat, is it's told very differently than some of the other accounts of the judges are told. A lot more detail. Notice also what follows the account of Shamgar, just one verse. But here we have ten verses out of the middle section, more than ten verses that deal with Ehud, but the ten verses in the middle section deal basically with a period of just a couple of days. How long does it take for him to make a dagger, to get the tribute together, go to the king of Moab, and kill the king of Moab, and come back? That's only a few days' worth of history, and yet ten verses are given to it. Five verses for 58 years in the story of Othniel, ten verses for just a few days here. The story slows down. The pace is much slower. If you're familiar with Old Testament history, you'll know that they tend to cover large chunks of time very quickly. For writing was at a premium back then. You don't stop and talk about the details unless the details matter. And what are some of those details? 
Well, it's an interesting story, isn't it? We have this, this king, Eglon, king of Moab, and God empowers him. We saw that right there at the beginning. It's God who strengthens him, God who, who uh, gives him the ability to overcome Israel. Israel's God raises up Eglon, the king of Moab. And Eglon comes in and conquers the people, and they serve him for 18 years. And then we find there's this man who God raises up, a man named Ehud, whom a Benjamite. And that's significant because that was kind of the smallest and most minor of the tribes. And so there's something to be said there for the, the fact that he comes out of this small, insignificant tribe. And he's left-handed. He's odd. He's a little different than most. He, he's not like the majority of the population. By the way, I was tempted for a while to go with the title of the sermon. I don't know if you know this, but the Latin, the, the Latin term for left-handed is our word sinister. And I wanted to call this the sinister savior. But I decided to go with the joy of our salvation instead as a title for the sermon. But we have here this sinister savior, this left-handed. Why is that important? Well, it turns out that that plays a role in how he saves the people. Let's put the details together. Let's understand what's going on. So he takes this sword. He crafts for himself a, a little mini dagger, 18 inches roughly in length. A cubit is the length from the elbow to the fingertip. So it's a short little dagger. Probably has no, uh, 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 no, what's that called? The, the crossbar, the top of a, of a knife. The, uh, 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 anyway, it probably doesn't have that. The fact that it went all the way in suggests that it didn't have that uh, crossbar at the top. It allows him to hide it even better. So he takes it and he puts it under his, his clothes, under his robe, on his right thigh. Why is that significant? Well, the king's guards, the king's uh, 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 servants, they're going to be eyeing anybody who comes into that chamber. But they're so used to right-handed people, they're looking on the left side of the people who come in. And so one of the things we see here, one of the things that's happening is in the retelling of this, the people are rejoicing in the cleverness of their savior. And they're rejoicing in the foolishness of their enemy. As they recount this through the centuries, if, if uh, Jewish tradition is correct and Samuel was the man who wrote down the book of Judges, the oral retelling of these stories through the centuries, these details stayed in there because they're laughing at them. They're going, look, these knuckleheads didn't even bother to check the right thigh. They were so focused on the left side, they didn't notice he snuck it in on his right thigh. <laughs> They're laughing at their enemy. And then he goes into the king of Moab and he delivers the tribute from the people of Israel. All of that, that's his way in. That's an expected thing. You're a conquered nation. You need to pay taxes. You need to pay the people who rule over you. You need to pay a tribute. And so they go in and do that. And they leave. And they start on their way, and they get to this place, This uh, not exactly sure where this place is, but there's some idols set up. It was not uncommon for uh, uh, kings back then to put idols at the boundary of their territory to acknowledge their gods. As you entered the country, you knew who their gods were. As you walked in on the road, you saw their idol, you knew who their god was. And so it appears that they've gotten to the border, and Ehud turns to the men that came with him and says, you go on your way, go on home, head home. Head back to your villages. I forgot something. I need to go back. 
And so he goes back and he goes back to the palace and says, I need to tell your king. I got a message from God for your king. And the people, they let him in and he gets in. He says, King, I've got a message for you. And the king wants to hear a message from God. A message from God? This is, God's going to tell me how great I am. God's going to tell me how wonderful I am. That's what the gods did back then. Kings, they were the, the descendants of the gods. And the priests, they knew how to butter up the hand that fed them. They said nice things about the kings. And they delivered messages from God that were about how wonderful the king was. And this is a self-indulgent king. Why do we have the detail that he was a very fat man? Because he gratifies his desires. He is a self-indulgent king. And you've got a message from your God? Clearly that's got to be a message about how great I am. And this I want to hear. Shut up! Everybody be quiet. Enough. Just get out of here. I want to hear what this king, what this God has to say about me as king. And he foolishly dismisses all of his guards. And he is fat. Not super quick. Not Mr. Athletic. And the left-handedness catches him off guard. I was coaching junior high girls basketball some years ago, and I used to tell my, my girls, really, at that level, you're talking about uh, junior high basketball, there's not a lot of players that can dribble with both hands well. And so I used to really pound on my girls to overplay her right hand. Stay on her right side. Stand guard. You position yourself here when she's dribbling. She can't go that way. And I'm yelling at Michelle. I'm yelling at Michelle. Get on. Play her right. Play her right side. And the girl keeps beating Michelle. And when, go to, Michelle, play her right side. And Michelle finally, in her quiet moment, says, Coach, she's left-handed. And I went, oh, I didn't notice that. It caught me off guard. We had to move Michelle over to play the other side to stop this girl. And Ehud is left-handed, and the king of Moab does not see that coming. Maybe he reaches out with his right hand to shake hands, something like that, and he pulls out the sword and he stabs the king. And something disgusting is recorded. It is not uncommon. Exactly why, whether he stabbed the intestines and that's what came spilling out, I, I don't quite think that's the case. The very fact that the wound covered up over the sword suggests that it's not what happened there. It wasn't that the, 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 that the, the dung, as it's described here, came pouring out of that wound, but rather just in the throes of death, as is common, he lost control of his bodily functions. And he ends up relieving himself when he's dying. Why is that detail being retold? Why is that in there? Because it's funny. Do you catch the humor going on here? What's the conversation in the outer room right now? As Ehud is in there killing Eglon, what's going on in the hallway? Well, the servants are out in the hallway having a discussion about, do we go in? I don't know. You knock. I'm not going to knock. He's probably, I mean, what's the, why is he in there this long? He must be using the bathroom. He's, he's relieving himself, our translation says. Uh, uh, some of them, uh, uh, the, 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 the Hebrew euphemism there is he's covered his feet. He's dropped his trousers so that they're now gathered around his shoes. That's funny. 
Because that's exactly what was happening. While they're outside worrying about what's happening in there, is the king using the toilet? The, the, the savior of Israel is going, yeah, that actually is what happened. That's exactly how it played out. This is a story that's fun to tell about your enemy. And funny to tell about your enemy. These guys don't even get how funny it was when they're standing on the hallway. They're out in the hallway worried about whether or not they should disturb the king while he's using the bathroom. He was using the bathroom because he was dead. Because our guy killed him. The telling of the story has details that are meant, slows down, and then includes these details that are meant to draw us in and let us see the irony and the humor and the laughter. This is a story of the people of God recounting a really cool victory. The way our God saved us on that occasion was awesome. And it was humiliating to our enemy. Sometimes in our 21st century Western sensibilities, that idea of humiliating one's enemy is a little unnerving. We're a little uncomfortable with that. We've, we're trained, we've been taught since we were this high that at the end of the game, you line up and shake hands with the other team. Not nowadays, but until a year ago we did. You line up and shake hands with the other team. You don't ever taunt them. You don't ever, because the other team's not your enemy, but these are the enemies of God and the people of God. How many times, we didn't read it this morning, but how many times does the psalmist say that God laughs at his enemies? He scoffs at them. And while he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, nevertheless, the wicked are those who have thumbed their nose, shaken their fists, defied God, and in the end, he gets the last laugh. And like those soldiers, they're not necessarily laughing at what happened per se to Eglon? They're not necessarily rejoicing. Those soldiers, if you stop them in the middle of their story and go, do you not care that somebody in that Jeep died when it blew up? They're going to stop and go, oh, yeah, I, yeah, that's, that's, that's tough to deal with, the fact that somebody died. They're not rejoicing in the death of their enemy. They're rejoicing in their victory. They're rejoicing in the way that they were saved the way they were dragged off the battlefield. The telling of the story is meant to draw us in so that we see these details and understand what's happening. And we see how the people of God rejoiced in God's salvation. What is the tragedy of the story? Well, the tragedy of the story is in the first and last verse we read. What was the first verse we read? Verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And the last verse we read in uh, 4.1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. The tragedy of the story, of course, is the sin of the people of God. That they continue to walk into the minefield. Our two soldiers, their wounds are self-inflicted. 
They didn't read the signs. They didn't pay attention to the signs. And they walk into a minefield. And one of them is at fault for being there, and his sin, his fault, has wounded him and his buddy. And that's the way sin works. When we ignore the signs, when we ignore the direction of God, we walk into a place that ends up hurting us and hurting other people. But this account, this story, is not focused on that so much. That's the tragedy of the story, that this keeps happening. But the focus is not, hey, you knuckleheads, quit walking into a minefield. Hey, you knuckleheads, quit doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. The focus is on the salvation of the Lord and the rejoicing and the joy they have in that. That's where we're looking. And we see that in the theme of the story. If the telling of the story is slow and detailed, so it draws us in and lets us see the humor and the irony then the tragedy and the tragedy of the story is the continued sin of the people. The theme of the story is found in verses 15 and 18. Look at verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Verse 20, uh, 28. The Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Let's be reminded that 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 word crying out, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Remember that it has no inherent inherent sense of of remorse. There is no inherent sense there of of, uh, uh, repentance. It is rather just crying out. We're tired of the punishment. I can remember a time... um, I was walking home from school and teasing the group of girls in front of us on the walk home. That's like second grade, third grade, something like that. And one of the girls uh, turned around and spit in my face. And I decked her. (laughs) Dropped her in one punch to the nose. I got home. That girl lived about two doors up. I got home. It wasn't long before her mom talked to my mom, and my mom talked to me, and, well... That's when things got interesting. For my mom said, I don't care, you aren't punching girls. But she spit in my face. And mom said, I don't care, you don't punch girls. And my mom marched me up to the other house and said, apologize to her. And I said, no. And my mom marched me back to my house, applied the instrument of correction to my backside and walked me up again. And I said no. And she walked me back home and spanked me another time and walked me up again. And this time I said, I'm sorry. And she said, sound like you mean it. And I said, I'm sorry. And she walked me back home and spanked me. This went on for a while. I can't honestly tell you how many times I got spanked that day. Walked back and forth, back and forth. And the reality is, I wasn't sorry for hitting her. I was eventually sorry I was getting spanked. And that's what we have going on here. They're not sorry for their sin, but they are sorry they're getting spanked. And they cry out to the Lord. And he is compassionate. He loves them. It's painful for him. As parents, many of us have had that experience of 
being in tears in the middle of correcting our children, of punishing our children, of disciplining our children, because it's painful for us. Being in tears as we let the consequences of their actions unfold in their life, because they need to learn the lesson. But we also understand that urge to finally say enough and step in. And our God says enough and he steps in. And that's the theme of this story. That no matter how many times we walk into the minefield, our God is going to drag us out and pull us to safety. No matter how many times we do uh, the foolish thing, our God is going to drag us out and keep us alive. No matter how many times we mess up, disobey, doubt, hurt one another, hurt ourselves, hurt him, he's going to save us. And that's a cause to rejoice. It's a time to take our mind off from our screwing up and to put it on his salvation. To look away from our stupidity for walking into the minefield and look at what he's done for us yet again. And on this occasion with this story, the people of God enjoyed it. They rejoiced in it. It was a fun story to tell. It was a story that brought smiles to their faces, laughter. As they told this story, every Israelite listening to it would be grinning ear to ear. That's some funny stuff, how Eglon died. That's cool how God saved us on that occasion. And the encouragement to us is to do the same. To continue to recount how God has saved us despite, of our, despite ourselves. How God has dragged us to safety time and time again. How God has uh, worked it out so that his enemies will one day be humiliated. You know, the classic portrayal of the devil, of Satan, you know, the one where he's got some horns and a, and a tail and a pitchfork and, you know, hooves, clothing, cloven hooves, that kind of that medieval classic portrayal. That wasn't because Christians in the Middle Ages thought the devil really looked like that. But rather, it was an attempt to mock the devil. It was a way to scoff at their enemy. It was a way to humiliate him and to put him down. And this story has that same tone. Your God is going, we don't have to do it. We don't have to humiliate and scoff at uh, the enemies of God. He's going to accomplish it for us. But our God is going to provide a victory. It's a victory that's going to bring a smile to our face. It's a victory that's going to humiliate the enemies of God. It is a victory that's going to happen despite the fact that we again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is who our God is. And this is a reason to rejoice in him, to praise him, to worship him, to sing of his greatness. Let's pray. Lord, let us rejoice in your salvation. Let us uh, 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 rejoice in the way that you save us in, 
in the most unexpected of ways that Jesus caught the enemies off guard. That he came to earth and lived out a life that was not what anybody saw coming. And by surprising Satan and by catching death off guard, he defeated both. By living a sinless life, he set us free from the power of sin. By dying and rising again, he beat death back. Let us rejoice in the the, the singular and surprising nature of the salvation you've given us in Jesus Christ. And let us rest in the glorious way that you humiliate your enemies and ours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.